like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Now, in this episode, I will begin looking at Dick's 1968 novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Uh, so many of you probably know about this novel. It's appeared in various forms uh, throughout popular culture. There is a comic book series based on this novel. There's a movie I heard of based on this book. So it, it has, it's one of the, probably the most famous of all of Philip K. Dick's works, uh, the most widely known. Even if people don't know Philip K. Dick, they probably know some of the cultural creations that have um, come off of this, this particular novel. It's, it's perhaps one of Dick's darkest novels and bleakest. It's, it's pretty depressing throughout. You don't have very much of the humor that you see. There's, there's maybe a little bit of humor and some of it can be looked at and appreciated comically. But compared to some of the other of his novels from the 60s, which are kind of rife with humor, this one is a, is, is a much drearier read. And I think sometimes when people have this idea of Philip Dick as kind of a depressing author or kind of a bleak author, or a dystopian writer, you know, they, they think of this book, right? And they don't necessarily read some of his other works like Clans of the Elfane Moon or Simulacrum, which... Have a, which are much more tongue-in-cheek, right? Even uh, a novel that we'll look at later called We Can Build You, which is thematically kind of similar to Do Andrew's Dream of Electric Sheep, is a lot more comical in its approach. And even just the last novel we looked at, Counterclock World, is, is, is funny compared to this, as are the two succeeding novels, Ubik and, and uh, Galactic Popular. Both have a lot of humor in this. So this one, the humor is pretty hard to find and maybe you have to have a pretty cynical sense of humor to find that humor in it. This novel is essentially a, a day in the life of a man named Rick Deckard who is a, a bounty hunter and his job is to retire androids who live on Earth. All right, so in this in the world we have here, Earth is kind of the left behind part of humanity. Most of humanity has moved off. The only people on Earth are those who choose to remain for some reason. Uh, like Rick Deckard, he decides to leave, stay for his job because his job really has no meaning elsewhere. Or they stay because they're, they're quote-unquote specials or they're, they're unable to have proper children because their DNA has been affected by the war. Um, in fact, you see a lot of characters wearing like lead cod pieces trying to protect their, their sperm from, from radiation and, and, and try to avoid becoming a special, but that's always a threat to anyone who remains there. And anyone who does remain on Earth too long will eventually become a special. It's also the home of like the intellectual inferiors, which are also called specials. It's a kind of different category of special. And so the Earth is mostly the left behind people, but occasionally androids will come from the colonies. Now, the, the, the androids have been developed to basically be a gift to people to encourage them to emigrate, right? So one big corporation produces most of them, although there is hints that there's competing corporations also developing uh, androids. The major one is the Rosen Corporation. And so if you go to the 
you know, to Mars or some other planet, you get a, a robot of your choice, right? And there's many, many different types, many different functions for these robots. Some are, some are sex slaves, some are agricultural workers, some are even, you know, basically essentially black slaves if you want to live out the life as, a, as, a, as the Old South, for instance. There's even advertisements to that effect that we see people get on Earth talking about that. So what we have in the colonies then is all the different historical uh, lives. Now, there's not much said about the frontier planets. Not, we don't ever see them. We're never there. Um, but this is very much a book about the frontier as well because we see the frontier everywhere. And here's really where humanity has moved on from Earth. It's kind of almost a, the inverse of what we see where the frontier becomes, we've seen in earlier novels, where the frontier becomes this uh, projection of, of humanity's kind of dreams to break free of, of kind of entropy. Here we see the end result of that perhaps, where all of humanity, most of humanity has moved behind. And the those left behind are essentially... Uh, human kipple and that's not my phrase it's actually from dick calling people like human kipple now I'll, I'll highlight that when we get to that exact phrase and also explain what kipple is a little bit later as well this is a very important concept in this novel essentially kipple is is junk that accumulates it's, it's the byproduct of en entropy right entropy basically leaves things behind in a just a scattered unproductive form right and that's kipple kind of junk right and it seems to be reproducing. It seems to have its own kind of logic to it. And the people who, left be, who are left behind on Earth are essentially a human variant of Kipple. They're the left behinds, they're the leftovers, right? And I, I think one reason that make the, this novel is relevant to us today is because it really does focus our attention on the people that humanity has like left behind. And even in our own world, there are many such people, right? The, there's a wonderful book about this by Zygmunt Bauman called Wasted Lives, really, that studies the trash, the human trash of global capitalism, just the people who get left behind, whether they're living in ghettos or slums, or they're just no longer necessary for the technocratic economy. Uh, they just become kind of an annoyance in a, to kind of the progressive civilization that, that, that we imagine we live in. Uh, in fact, the cost of that is leaving many people behind. And we can kind of equivocate on this. We can be like maybe China and say, oh, we're lifting people out of poverty. We're kind of advancing. But still, you know, the vast majority, not maybe not the majority, but many millions and millions of people are, are in a position where they're potentially left behind or are already being left behind. And with automation, this threat is going to grow, it seems. So that's part of the geopolitics of this novel. Of course, it's said after a war, Earth's been devastated. No one can stay there anymore. So the androids are given to people as they want to leave. Sometimes they escape and they escape from their masters and they go back to Earth where they hope to live out lives basically undercover and not get caught. And then so Rick Deckard works for the police department and his job is essentially to track down these androids and, and retire them, right? basically kill them. And when we meet Rick Deckard, he's very, very depressed about the fact that he doesn't have a, a real animal anymore. He once had a real sheep, but that sheep died, and now he doesn't have an animal. And this is the great dream of the people who are left on Earth, because most of the animals have died as a result of the war. Some animals survived, some species survived due to luck or because they were in zoos or private collections. And they're carefully kind of being raised, and so people they can be bought and sold. But the dream of most families on Earth is just to have an animal. Poor families will have a mouse, 
maybe even a, an insect or a squirrel, more elite families can afford much more expensive large animals. And Rick Deckard wants an expensive um, real animal. Because that's what he had before, right? He currently has an electric sheep, and that's what he wants. So he goes out then on his job to hunt androids. And he's, he's, he's actually, on this day, it basically landed on his lap that his co-worker, the one who normally would have got these jobs, was killed or, or shot. I think it was shot and critically injured by an android that he was hunting. And so there's six jobs still waiting to be done, right? So this is $6,000 for him plus his normal salary. This will then allow him to purchase an animal, or at least get the down payment on an, on an animal. And this is what he's after. This is what's motivating him for, for much of the novel. Something that seems so simple to us, just to have an animal in our house. But it's a really thematic core of this book, because this is a book about empathy. It's a book about uh, how we connect to other living things. And the big gap between the android and the human is, is empathy. Right. In fact, that is how the bounty hunters are able to identify who is an android or not is through the empathy test, right? So you can ask the, the android certain questions, gauge their physical, physiological responses to that, their eyeball movements, how many their capillaries, whatever it is, and re get a reading on their empathetic response. And if they don't have this, or it appears to be simulated or it comes too late, then you know that they are, are an android. And so the, there's never, this doesn't mean there's not android subjectivity. There is a degree of android subjectivity in the novel. It's just that they lack empathy, right? And they're described at one point in the story as literally uh, predators, sol solitary predators who don't have empathy for each other and, or for their prey or those that want to kill. And that's what makes them so dangerous, right? But they do have subjectivity. They have a self-awareness. They, they have a desire to live. They, they have maybe even perhaps some feelings. Uh, they have pasts, they have memories, those may be program memories, but they're essentially real memories. So the, the movie they made about this book does, I guess, get that right, that at least there is the element of, of, of subjectivity, but the movie is a little bit more on the side of, of the android than I think the book is. The book really sees this huge gap, almost an unbridgeable gap between humanity and the androids, and that is the gap of empathy. Now, in a way, this, this novel is really uh, a novel of animal rights. We've talked in some previous episodes about how Dick starts to play with this question of animal rights and, and our, our duty to animals. And for instance, now wait for last year, there's a character who, who thinks even these unicellular organisms, which are used to make consumer goods and then frozen into place, essentially killed, so people can have furs and, and, and things like that. A character questions whether that should be done. There are other examples in, especially novels in the mid-60s, where Dick seems to be coming on the side of animal rights. This is the clearest declaration of, of an animal rights agenda, right? And not because it's, but it's based on this human empathy. This is what makes humans humans, is that they can feel for the suffering of other creatures. And there's something really distasteful about like eating meat or, or using other animals for clothing. And this comes through in the empathy test. If you look at the questions on the empathy test, they're all about, you know, the treatment of other people, but also the treatment of, of animals, right? If you see someone eating a dog or if you see someone wearing a fur coat, what is the response that you have? And this is supposed to elicit an empathetic response, 
true humans would then feel empathy for these living things. Now, the question is whether this is possible. This always exists or this is historical. Is this because most animals have been killed and most people are very lonely on Earth and most people feel this need to have a connection with any kind of living thing? Right. That seems to be a, a certainly a part of that. Right. It's the historical context of empathy in this novel is one in which the life is dying. There is very little life left on Earth. You know, there's humans, there's a few animals just scraping by, and the future of Earth is death. There is not much future for Earth. So all you really have left to cling to is some kind of connection to other living things. And this is what Rick Deckard is constantly searching for throughout the novel, despite the fact that he's killing androids throughout the whole story. He's also constantly searching for some kind of connection with someone, whether it's his wife or whether it's this animal he wants to have. Uh, he's constantly searching for animals to buy. Uh, there, whether it's uh, Rachel Rosen, who appears to be an android, or or other characters, you know, there's even a moment at the end. We'll get to it where he, he even is trying to have this connection with a with a frog that turns out to be an electric frog, and and his disappointment finding that out is one of the most bleak moments in this in this story. Well, I don't know what more to say in preview. It, it's a great novel. I think you should read it. I, I wouldn't say it's my favorite Philip Dick novel. I understand why it's his, one of his most famous and most well-known, above and beyond the fact that it's appeared in film after a fashion. It's that it's, it's a really compelling story in a lot of ways, and it's, um, it's got some of their most, well, most well-developed characters, especially with, with Rick Deckard. Um, now, the novel does, one more thing, the novel does play with the question of, of whether people can be programmed to be an android. This is um, something that the film versions play with a lot, a lot more with than I think Dick does. Dick never really takes it seriously except as a philosophical question. There's other characters who are facing this dilemma. I mean, the, he does this in the stories, of course, this idea. Someone wakes up and they're, they're a robot, but they have the memories of, of their regular past, so they don't really know they're an android. And then the, the story will be about the shock of figuring that out, right? The difference, though, is like the, the empathy is still there. If you have the empathy, if it's a real legitimate empathy, not a simulated response programmed into you, you are going to, you're a human, right? And you're a physical human. I mean, androids in this world, at least, in this novel, are incapable of actual empathy, right? Whether he does that in other works, has, have robots capable of empathy, I don't know. I, I mean, I, don't, I can't think of any off the top of my head that have that, but... Here in this world, they're not really capable of it. So the idea that Rick Deckard might be an android is played with at one point, but it's more a kind of a mindfuck than actually that done by another character than a, a legitimate question, something we should take seriously as a reader, it seems. And it's actually thrown away by the midpoint of the novel. This question is, is resolved pretty conclusively that Rick Deckard has empathy. And we've known it all along, actually, from the opening pages of the, of the novel. I mean, I guess we can't fully know if they're simulated early on, but the test is administered at some point in the in the story. So, um, anyways, jumping right into it, our, our our story begins with a little um, introduction. Uh, it's actually from a Reuters article in 1966 about the the death of a 200-year-old turtle named um, what was it named? Tumililla. Um, died like a, in the Pacific Islands. He was given as a gift uh, 
by Captain Cook to the King of Tonga in 1777, and he had just died. And the, the story here talks about, the little newspaper clipping, talks about how the people of Tonga had made this kind of a totem of their society, even a king with its own kind of fief and special keepers to care for it. So this animal has been lifted up into to a sacred level, right? And animals in the novel have reached the same, same thing, right? And now, well, let's talk about the title a little bit. Do androids dream of electric sheep? I, I think there's a lot in here, right? Well, now, one way of reading this, and I, I've seen some people talk about this this way, it's like, do androids dream of electric sheep? It's like this kind of commonality we have with the android then. We dream of sheep and they dream of electric sheep. It's just a parallel, right? And I, I guess you could read it that way, but very early in the first chapter, we're, we're told pretty explicitly that anyone who actually would want an electric sheep is, is a psychopath. The only reason Rick Deckard has an electric sheep early on in the novel is he's putting on airs. He's trying to pretend he has a real sheep. He hates the idea that he's an electric sheep. He's obsessed with it. He wants a real sheep. He's, there's something, he, there's a loss in him because he doesn't have a real sheep, right? So do androids dream of electric sheep? The answer to this question, if it's yes, it just more or less proves that the androids are bereft of empathy. They're, they're, they can't really have connections with real living things, much less each other. Um, so that's my reading of the title, but maybe you have your own interpretation of it. Please, please let me know. So as the pro novel proper opens, chapter one, Rick Deckard wakes up next to his wife, wife Irma. Oh no, Iran, sorry, his wife Iran. And this whole opening scene is about this the fight they have over the use of this device called a mood organ. Right? And this has many uses. Basically, it helps them get up, and they can get up in a certain mood based on the setting they set the night before. And they're immediately, they're fighting over Iran putting the wrong setting. So she woke up kind of in a bleak, depressed mood, and, and Rick Decker doesn't like that. Uh, he said, you set, the, you set the setting too weak. But it's not just for getting up. There's all kinds of different settings you can set it to. It seems there's hundreds and hundreds of different settings based on the type of feeling you want. Everything from the desire to want to watch TV to the desire to, to want to set a, a, mood or, a mood organ setting for yourself if someone is just so depressed and bleak that they don't even want to set a mood organ setting for themselves. You can have a setting for that. Um, and, you know, there seems to be so many settings that they don't even know how many there are, how many different ways they can they explore it. Um, and right away we get this intense hostility, almost a degree of hatred between this married couple. Again, this is familiar territory for Philip Dick. His married couples are almost always at each other's throats and, and having, at some level, his view of marriage is a type of institutionalized hate. And, you know, he, she basically calls him a murderer in the first page of the novel for his job of, of essentially killing, killing androids. He, he says, I never killed a human being before. And she replies, well, you just kill those poor Andes. She's express, now, she, her, does she express real empathy here for the Andes, I, the androids? I don't know. I, I think it's a theme later on in the story about whether empathy for androids is creeping into humanity and what that, the effects that will be. Right? That's, an, that's an important theme here. I mean, even if they want to have a fight, they can set, they both have the setting to like greatest maximum venom, and then they'll both fight each other. If they want to have sex, they can set it for maximum erotic, um, maximum erotic response. And, you know, so much of, especially of, the, of this novel is about Deckard's emotions. 
really from the opening page to the end, we're following Deckard's emotions. Dick, you know, is constantly reminded of what's on Deckard's mind, how he's feeling. And I don't know, remember any other novel in which he did that that carefully with a character. Really, at every step of the way, letting us know how that character feels. Now, it's being told right away that these emotions are, at least for, if you're connected to mood organ, artificial is, is I think, significant anyways. Um, it, now, Rickard, or Rick Deckard's not connected to a mood organ for most of the day, so those emotions seem to be authentic. But Iran, who's at home all day, she's a housewife, and she sits around watching TV all day, and it's depressing. And I, I, again, I can't help but imagine that Dick is projecting some of his own marital problems onto this character but she's sitting at home all day feeling sorry for herself so feeling sorry for the world feeling this emptiness and this despair and so she actually says she found out that there's a setting for despair so she programmed for herself using her mood organ a six-hour self-accusatory depression and rick deckard is horrified at this like why would anyone want to feel um depression his response tells us right here that he's not an android that he actually is horrified at the idea of this woman for six hours feeling sorry, you know, feeling this intense depression. And he tries to talk her out of it, but he's not really able to do that. Now we're already reminded in this part of the novel just how empty the world is. Like, um, you know, there's, there's, the cities are all still there, at least the ones that survived the war. The buildings are there, but they're all empty, right? There's characters we meet that, that live alone in whole, a whole apartment complex that no one else lives in. They're the only person there. Someone else showing up is a big surprise for him. It's, it's just an empty world. It's a world of the leftovers. Just the, the remainder who aren't needed anymore are just living out their lives on Earth. Um, and I think it's really interesting that Dick sets this novel in such a location, in a location of, of um, basically kind of a... It's not even a slum. Slums are overcrowded. I, I, it's, kind of a, it's an undercrowded slum is, is kind of what we have here. But it's, it's full of the abandoned folks. And what can you feel in such a situation except despair and, and emptiness? We also learn in this opening scene a little bit about the media environment. In part two, I guess, uh, as an anodyne for this depression, one of the most popular TV shows is Buster Friendly and His Friendly Friends. And it's kind of a, an upbeat, live kind of comedy news variety show program that's the main thing that's on TV. And um, that's going to be one of the main ways that people kind of connect with the outside world. One is through kind of the, the carbon copy, the, the hackneyed plots, the, the scripted nonsense of Buster Friendly and his friendly friends. And the other is going to be the empathy box, which, of course, we've already been introduced to in the story of the black box. So in the second half of the first chapter, Rick Deckard gets ready for work. He puts on his cod piece. And then he goes to the roof of his building to check on his electric sheep. And, you know, he's pretty depressed about this. He even was fighting with his wife about the fact that she spends all his money, and which is why they can't afford a replacement real sheep. Um, we get a long discussion of the legacy of the war. Quote, the legacy of World War Terminus had diminished in potency. Those who could not survive the dust had passed into oblivion years ago, and the dust, weaker now in confronting the strong survivors, only deranged minds and genetic properties. Despite his lead codpiece, the dust undoubtedly filtered in him and, and at him, brought him daily so long as he failed to emigrate. His little load of befollowing filth, 
So long, medical checkups take monthly confirmation him as a regular, a man who could reproduce within the tolerable tolerate, tolerance is set by the law. Any month, however, the exam by the San Francisco Police Department, doctors could reveal otherwise. Continually, new species come into existence, created out of regulars by the omnipresent dust. They say the saying currently blabbered on by posters, TV ads, and government junk mail ran, emigrate or degenerate, the choice is yours. End quote. So yeah, that's, that's all that's left. There's really no future for, for Earth. Now his neighbor comes out who has an animal on the roof, a horse, and his name is Barbour, and he's all proud of the fact that his horse is pregnant. Now this is a big deal. This is a, to have two horses is, is amazing luck and amazing fortune. To have even one horse for, for someone like Rick Deckard is, is like unheard of, right? The prices are astronomical. In fact, there's a catalog that you can look at to see the prices of different animals. And many of these animals aren't even available because there's just none left or they're extinct. But they do often have prices just to kind of rub it in how uh, only the elite can afford these. Um, so Rick starts asking, like, why doesn't, why can't you give me one of your horses or why can't I buy it from you? And Barber really resists doing this because he, he, he thinks you have, an you have a sheep. I don't know. He didn't know it's electric sheep. He says, you have a sheep. You know, I can't, you can't have two animals. It's no more right for you to have two animals than for me to have two animals. And we learned that actually there's this idea of everyone having an animal is core to the quote theological and moral structure of mercerism mercerism is the major religion in this this world um, quote you have your sheep hell you can follow the ascent in your individual life when you grasp the two handles of empathy you approach honorably but if you didn't have that old sheep there you i'd see some logic in your position sure if i had two animals you didn't have any i'd be depriving you of your true fusion with mercer but every family in this building let's see around 50 one to every three apartments, as I compute it, every one of us has an animal of some sorts. So that's how he's able to resist it. And then this, of course, forces Decker to admit that his, his sheep is electric. Right? And then Decker gets into the history of where this, why this sheep is, is electric. And that is, he actually had a real sheep for a while, inherited from his father-in-law, who emigrated. But the, the, that sheep got tentness. And so he needs a replacement. And so that's what's going to be motivating him uh, throughout the novel is, is getting a real animal. Um, some interesting things here. Um, now, this is not primarily a novel about false fronts. It's, it's more about empathy and, and humanity and animal rights. But there are examples of fakeness here. Um, we'll, we'll talk about them as they come up. It is, of course, a major Philip Dick theme. Here you have the fake animal hospitals. I think it's really funny. It's because it's so embarrassing to have an electric animal that when the repair people come to fix your, your sheep or your cat or whatever it is, they pose as, as vets, right? So from the outside, they just seem to, seem to be vets. Um, but Deckard's drive to have an animal is really, really strong here. And he's, he seems almost desperate. The neighbor says, why don't you just get a cat? And Rick Deckard, you know, is kind of horrified at the idea of, of settling for, for a cat. So in the final moments of this chapter, though, Rick kind of violently and aggressively threat, almost threatens his neighbor with death to his horse, saying, you know, something could happen to your horse. This way something happened to my sheep. His died of tetanus, right? A random thing can happen to your animal, too. Life is fragile, right? And, and I guess... It's because life is fragile that empathy is possible, right? If we were superheroes, if, if we couldn't die, it'd be harder to have, have that same feeling of empathy. 
So what makes these animals so valuable is the preciousness of their life, the rarity of it, and the precariousness of it. And, and Rick Decker just reminds them of that um, as he walks away. And that's chapter one, a very, very powerful chapter. Uh, and it's, it's, it kind of gets to a lot of the themes of the novel uh, right away. Now in chapter two, we're, we were introduced to the other major character in this novel, a man named, uh, it's John, right? John, John Isidor. Johnny Sidor is a special. He's, uh, he can't have children safely. He's also a chicken head, which means he's a, a special of the type of, of, of below average intelligence. We learn later on that everyone is tested on Earth at some point with the empathy test. And this test can also determine if people are specials. And um, the idea is that everyone will be tested at some point, so all the androids will eventually be you know, caught in that net. But he's recently found out that he's special, which means he can't even go off Earth if he wants to. He's stuck on Earth till till he's done for, until the Earth is done for. So they're on a, they're literally on a dying world. There's no future here for Earth. I, I can't stress that enough. He's in this empty apartment house. He's the only one in it. Now we saw that Deckard's apartments were more filled, right? It was like one family for every three conaps. Here, the whole building, a decaying building with thousands at one point lived there, he's the only one living there, right? It's, it's completely empty. He moves from time to time, but essentially he, he's the only person living in this huge apartment complex. Um, so he's really out there in kind of a, a horrible part of town. No other connection to other people in his life except for his work. And what is his work? Well, he drives one of these cars that pretend to be vets for this electric animal repair shop. So the exact thing that Rick Deckard was thinking about in chapter one, that's exactly what Johnny Soder's job is, to help sustain this false front that these uh, vets are actually, you know, that these repairmen are actually vets. So no one has to lose face among their neighbors. We're told here a little bit of the past of, of the war and what happened to animals. And there's a lot of focus in Isidore's mind and thought about the plague that, that killed first the owls. The owls were the first to die. And later on, other animals started to die. And, and eventually, when it seemed that life could not survive on Earth, that's when the UN pursued its policy of, of giving every immigrant an android to encourage them to leave Earth. We can't forget here, though, that these, that these are essentially slaves. In fact, it's in this chapter that we have the TV set uh, advertising, duplicates of Hellcon days of the pre-Civil War Southern states. Either as body servants or tireless field hands, the custom-tailored humanoid robot designed specifically for your unique needs and for you alone, given to you by your arrival, absolutely free, fully equipped, and specified by you before your departure from Earth, this loyal, trouble-free companion in the greatest, boldest adventure contrived by man in modern history will provide. Dot, dot, dot. So essentially, if I don't know, we don't. Think, I don't think we get more evidence of this. But if we extrapolate it, there are colonies of of plantation owners, like on Mars somewhere, with android slaves, and they're emulating the life of the southern arist arist aristocracy, with all the ideal idealization of that life. Right? Obviously, slaves weren't loyal. They weren't submissive. They resisted constantly. But in the fantasy of Southern apologists and of people nostalgic for the pre-Civil War South, they have this image of the of enslaved men and women as docile and loyal. And that's exactly if you want that in an android, you can get it. It's kind of horrifying, right? That people would actually do that. Um, you know, 
kind of create a, fr a franchise model of, of the old south on, on some other planet, thanks to androids. Because they have no rights. They, they, they obviously can be killed and enslaved and used in any way. But I don't think Dick is, is just doing this for a joke. I think he's really trying to suggest that there are essentially android, android slavery in, in the colonies. You know, not just the fact that these are owned by people, but they're, they're kind of actually trying to emulate a, a period they're nostalgic for, these people. Um, now, there's some connection that seems to be between Isidore and Iran, who both spent a lot of time watching TV. Um, now, Iran's not a special, Isidore is, but they both focus a lot on, on television, and they're both watching Buster Friendly and his Friendly Friends TV show. And uh, he's watching interviews with emigres talking about how great it is on the, on the colonies. I think it's here we get our first mention of the word kipple. It's not defined till a later chapter with Isidore. Now, the term kipple comes from Buster Friendly. It, it doesn't come from Isidore himself, but he's kind of developed a philosophy around it. Other people know the term. Um, quote, he lived alone in this deteriorating blind building of a thousand uninhabited apartments which like all its counterparts fell day by day into greater entropic ruin. Eventually everything within the building would merge, would be faceless and identical, mere pudding-like kipple piled to the ceiling of each apartment. And after that, the uncared for building itself would settle into shapelessness, buried in the ubiquity of the dust. By then, naturally, he himself would be dead. Another interesting event to anticipate as he stood there in a stricken living room alone with the lungless, all-penetrating, masterful world silence. And after this, he tries to turn on the TV, and this doesn't do it for him. Just the noise from the TV doesn't do it for him. So he, before getting ready for work, he goes to the black empathy box, the, the, the empathy box. And it, basically, the empathy box is a device in which you hold on with two hands, and then you kind of can enter a mental realm where you are in the mind of Mercer, you know, the leader of this Mercerist movement, and you experience his past, you experience the sufferings of his life, and you experience him as he's trying to climb up this rocky hill, getting trying to get to the summit while being pelted by rocks. And you feel the pain. And, but you also feel this connection with everyone else who's holding the empathy box. And it's a quite amazing few pages where, where we experience what Isidore is experiencing in the empathy boxes. And it does include Mercer's own background and, and the turmoil and the persecution he faced, uh, basically of trying to preserve life in a time when, when numerous animals are going extinct. And here's uh, kind of the climax of his experience. Quote, he found himself evidently climbing alone, but they were there. They still accompanied him. They felt them strangely inside of him. Isidore stood holding the two handles, experiencing himself as an encompassing every other living thing. And then reluctantly, he let go. It had to end as always. And anyhow, his arm ached and bled where the rock had struck him. End quote. So that's where he, he lets go of it. But he actually bleeds from this, this rock that hit him in this, you know, when he was holding the empathy box. He experienced Mercer getting hit in the arm, but it actually cut his own arm. That's how powerful the experience was, right? But this fusion with Mercer and with all the other people who are holding the empathy box at the time is his connection to the rest of the world. It's like a competing media almost compared to Buster Friendly and his friendly friends, which is hackney and artificial and, and stale, not really real. It's just noise, right? Iran seems to think of Buster Friendly as just noise. 
Isidore thinks of it the same way. It's just noise to fill up the emptiness in, in his day. Uh, but the empathy box provides something real. It actually has this uh, experience of, of, of joining with other people, which is more necessary than ever in this world that is empty and dying and, and without any future, without any hope. But what people have is, is sort of each other, and they can feel that momentarily with the empathy box. And this is so desired by people that we're told that even people die from time to time by using the empathy box. They'll, they'll have heart attacks or cardiac arrests um, when using it. And, and after this, the chapter ends and Isidore gets ready to go to, to work. Oh, but oh, he does hear that another neighbor has moved in first. Sorry. So he starts to have fears of being exposed to the neighbors, the new neighbors as a chicken head, but he also has this desire that he's not alone, right? And there's a really interesting moment when he hears a neighbor coming and Dick actually writes like, he felt he was not alone. But this is also from the empathy box experience, he felt not alone. But then now he's got some something, a real person in the building who's moving in. We'll see who that is later on. So in chapter three, Deckard goes to work, but first he stops by the pet shop because he's constantly thinking about the animal he wants to get. And he sees this ostrich there. And later on, he looks at the price of the ostrich or he gets it by calling. It's like $30,000. He gets $1,000 for every android he, he retires. So it's pretty high price, but he, he still sort of wants that. And he's going to dream of it. But he goes to work, and his boss there is Harry Bryant. That's the, the head of his department in the police station. And there's a... And he finds out that his co-worker, a man named Holden, has been shot while trying to retire androids. There was eight that are kind of that he had contracts out on. And he retired two of them. He tested two, he tested one other, and that one shot him. And so now Rick Decker has a job in front of him. And he has a job, not only a job, but he has a chance to make a bunch of money, right? Six thousand dollars on top of his salary. So he's kind of excited about that, that possibility. Right? But the problem here is that there, there's a new Android model on the market, the Nexus 6. And we're told here that there's a lot of tension between the Rosen Corporation that makes these robots and the police over the development of these new androids. Because the new androids, as they get better and better at replicating humans' emotions, which seem to be what the consumers want, and that's what Rosen will say later on, that he's simply doing what the, what the people want. But as they get better and better at emulating human emotions, they also get the more difficult to identify and, and determine normal, using the normal tests. Um, so Deckard, Deckard starts to look over the data on these Nexus 6 models, because they're the ones he's going to have to track down. And he, talk, he thinks about the challenges to the empathy test that, that he uses. But we're reminded that even though these new models might be better at emulating human emotions, or human empathy, I should say. They, they don't have it. Uh, Deckard and Philip Dick are quite clear about that. Quote, an android, no matter how gifted to its pure intellectual capacity, could make no sense out of the fusion which took place routinely among the followers of mercerism, an experience which he, and virtually everyone else, including subnormal chicken heads, managed with no difficulty. And he thinks more about the, the boundary between, I mean, empathy and, and other creatures, other living creatures, and where to actually place are other creatures capable of empathy and which ones would it be and where would you put the humanoid robot in kind of the, the phylum of, of life because it seems to be a life uh, 
I don't think Dick here is saying that they don't have intelligence, they don't have subjectivity. What they don't have is empathy. That's the, that's the heart of it. And that's what makes them not morally human. Um, he, so we, we, Deckard thinks about how the fact that there is in the world all sorts of life that has intelligence of some sort, right? Even in spiders and things. But, quote, the empathic faculty probably required an unimpaired group instinct. A solitary organism such as a spider would have no use for it. In fact, it would tend to abort a spider's ability to survive. It would make him conscious of the desires to live on the part of the prey. Hence, all predators, even the highly developed mammals such as cats, would starve. Empathy, he at once decided, must be limited to herbivores or anyhow omnivores who could depart from a meat diet. Because ultimately, the empathic gift blurred the boundaries between hunter and victim, between the successful and the defeated. As in the fusion with Mercer, everyone ascended together, or when the cycle had come to an end, fell together into the trough of the tomb world. Oddly, it resembled a sort of biological insurance, but double-edged. As long as some creatures experienced joy, then the condition for all their creatures included a fragment of joy. And he says at the end that basically the humanoid robot is closest to a solitary predator, maybe like a, like a, some kind of panther or something. Not even dogs. I mean, dogs at least have a group instinct. Wolves, I mean. And even Mercer says, you know, you should kill only the killer. So the door is open ethically to, to kill killers. And that's all those without empathy are really capable of doing is, is murder of others. Now, Dick here opens up the door for an evolutionary explanation for this. And I think to the degree that we have empathy, that, you know, we have morality, it, it comes out of an evolutionary imperative, right? That we are social animals. We are group animals. And, you know, without that, we wouldn't never have survived as long as, as, as we did. So all this thinking about animals and empathy lead him to call the pet shop, the one he walked around and he got the price for the ostrich as $29,000, $1,000 less than kind of catalog price. He despairs at this. He probably can't even put together the down payment. So he calls uh, another company that can make electric ostriches and he finds he can get one for $800. Obviously he doesn't want that. But Deckard starts to feel depression with, um, for his future days. Um, and his his job but he does think that maybe he can make some money uh, today thanks to uh, Dave Holden's you know injury he'll be able to finish the job and make six six grand by the end of the day um, so chapter four continues where chapter three lets off we're still with Rick Deckard and uh, they talk about the the androids that are left that there were eight that uh, he was trying to find two he had retired one the, th the third he got him but the third has already been positively identified as an android with the empathy test so his name is polaklov polaklov like a russian name he's the one that we know is an android the other five have to be found have to the empathy test has to be administered and then retired um, now however they start to talk about the problem of their empathy test scale the Voigt-Kampf scale, that's what they have. It's basically the way they interpret the data from the questions. And so they, what, the way the empathy test works is you'll get, um, they'll shoot a beam of light in your eye, ask you questions, and the machine will then register your capillary responses, your eye movement, things like that. And then there's a scale by which they can measure what's a normal human empathic response and what is not. And if you're not, you're an android, right? But the boss, Bryant, starts to throw a, a bombshell into this, saying that over in Russia, 
they're starting to do experiments with empathy tests and finding that some humans, people who aren't, bio, you know, there are ways of determining biologically, but it's like bone marrow tests. These are so like humans that the only way to find out is with a bone marrow test. But there's actually humans that, that they do the empathy test to that they register as, as androids even though they aren't, right? And these are the schizoids. So let's jump to Wikipedia for the schizoid because it, it comes up quite a lot in Dick's later works. Um, here, we can build you. It's a big thing there too. And here's the problem. Here's the rub with this whole empathy test thing is, um, is the schizoid. So I'm reading just from Wikipedia, quote, a schizoid personality disorder is a personality disorder characterized by a lack of interest in social relations, a tendency towards solitary and sheltered lifestyle, secretiveness, emotional coldness, detachment, and apathy. Affected individuals may be unable to form intimate attachment to others and simultaneously demonstrate a rich, elaborate, and exclusively internal fantasy world, end quote. Um, now, it seems to have some connection to schizophrenia, but... It's, it's a kind of a different thing. It's more of a personality disorder than, than actually a straight up kind of mental illness. But that's it. So that's the problem. If there's people that can be identified as an android that aren't, then the empathy test is, of course, no good anymore. So he said, you got to go check this out. You got to figure out what's going on with these Nexus sixes. So Deckard goes to Seattle to see the Rosen Corporation, which they're headed in Seattle. And so we get this scene where he's at the Rosen Corporation. He sees there are animals that are full of animals in the offices, including even an owl. And owls are supposed to be extinct. Um, and it's just kind of amazing to see all this, the wealth, the richness that, that corporate, corporate power can let you have just in terms of, of the wealth of animals. A lot of this chapter, though, deals with the tension between the corporation and the police and their mistrust of one another, right? That... Every time they create a better android, the tests to identify the androids have to get better as well. And Rosen says, well, we're just keeping up with the market. If we don't do it, someone else will, and someone will build a better android. So we're just following the market trends. I suppose it's the same thing with, uh, I guess, the tension between governments and some tech companies now, right? With especially governments that want to control the internet. Um, Rick wants to really blame Rosen for getting beyond the scale and not staying within the limits of the scale, not programming androids that can be easily identified using the scale. Um, but basically, they come up with this test that they're going to use to see if they... The, the, the question basically is, will the Nexus 3... Uh, can the Nexus 3 be identified with the empathy test? And I guess secondarily, can the, will the empathy test pick some humans by accident? And so they create a test to do this, and that's going to be, it's going to test a bunch of people. Um, some will be androids, some will be humans, and that's, that's the deal they work out. Now, Deckard is introduced to Rachel Rosen, the niece of, of, of the boss, Rosen, and she's going to be the first test subject. So the question is, is she an android? And I think that's where we have to leave off um, chapter four. I plan to do five episodes on Dwayne Jewish Dream of Electric Sheep, so... Four chapters is enough for now. In the next episode, I'll look at chapters five through eight, uh, which will get us actually almost to halfway. Um, but I'll, I'll do five full episodes. It'll give us time to talk about these themes and, and uh, give the play-by-play -play what's going on in this novel. A lot, though, established in the first chapter, especially on the theme of empathy, uh, the empathy test, the problems in the empathy test, the 
the drive, what's happened to animals and the, the connection between empathy and animal rights is highlighted here a lot. Uh, the fate of the people left on Earth, right? There's, we learn a lot right away in the early chapters. Um, but that's going to do it for now. If you have your own thoughts about this, this novel, let me know. How you, how, how'd you feel when you first read it? Um, how do you feel about the various adaptations that we've seen of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Obviously, a lot of what I talk to isn't really in the adaptations. The empathy box isn't. Isidore isn't in any the, 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 the film adaptation. So, you know, it's the black box isn't there. Mercerism isn't in any of that. So to what degree is the film thematically consistent with, with the f movies? Um, and if not, why not? Where, where is it lacking? So I guess that's it. Yeah, that'll be it for now. I'll be back next time with part two of my thoughts on Duane Regime of Electric Sheep, covering chapters five through eight. See you then. You must you find the blue And contentment forever If you